Gosh, I'm thinking back to, I guess it's about three years ago, right around now, this kind of period, you started hearing something called the Great Reset. I think it started uh, up in British Columbia, you had the leader of the Green Party, Elizabeth May, saying COVID was an opportunity for a reset. But of course, it went much deeper than that. Uh, we had uh, a book written by Klaus Schwab. Uh, we had Prince at that time, Prince Charles, now King Charles, uh, down there talking at the World Economic Forum, but all of that. And so much of it was treated like, hey, this is a conspiracy. And yet it's dominated so much of what we've got when we talk about global politics at this point. And it's having a direct impact on your own financial well-being. That's why I was excited when I read that Carol Roth is putting out a book. She's got years of experience in the financial services sector, but the book is entitled, You Will Own Nothing. Gosh, that's got to be familiar to anybody who's followed this story. You will own nothing. Your war with a new financial world order and how to fight back. Carol joins me uh, right now. Carol, first of all, I do appreciate you finding time with this. It's exciting. The book gets released. Uh, Pre-orders right now on Amazon, and it's doing well there. Five-star reviews, but it's uh, going to be released on July 18th. So this is incredibly timely. So first of all, thank you for taking the time with us when you've got this sort of busy book launch time going. <laughs> no, it's my, my pleasure. This is such an important topic. And uh, I always joke, you know, people think that people get wealthy writing books. I promise you we don't. <laughs> not, not the best return on investment. I should probably take my own advice. But the information was so important that it was really um, a critical endeavor to get that information out there to empower people with the knowledge about what's going on and really give them the roadmap to, to fight back. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to chat with you about it. Well, let's start with where you started from, which I, I've read that you didn't really believe this, you know, when you started to read some of the aspects. I mean, I would say you were a doubter. You said, I think this is a bit of a conspiracy. And that was the mainstream response. I mean, that's what people thought. But how did you come overcome that? How did you come to think, hey, wait a second, this is real? So it actually didn't take as much research as one might think, Mike. You, you see this, you'll own nothing, you'll be happy, associated with the World Economic Forum, which is littered with the global business and political elite. And I'm like, well, it's on social media. There's no way that this group is, is predicting the end of private property. That's ridiculous because, as you know, and I know we come from the financial services background, you've got ownership equals wealth. That's how people get wealthy. So the implications that you wouldn't be able to have assets that could retain or appreciate in value had severe implications. So I just decided to do a little research and it did not take very much time to see Yes, in fact, the number one prediction from a video that's, by the way, still up on their Twitter account, the number one prediction they had in their top predictions for 2030 is you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. And I thought it was staggering on both sides of that because people focus on the you'll own nothing part of that, um, you know, which rightfully they should. But the you'll be happy part almost is like we need you to buy into this. We need for you to think that this is for your good and for your convenience. And it's such an amazing thing because we all know throughout history, the people who haven't had property have been very unfree and very unhappy if they even lived. So they need to kind of change the, the narrative, so to speak, on that. And then when you go back and you do just a little bit more research, you'll find out that this is an idea that has been repurposed and repackaged by the WEF. And that's one thing um, that they do. In fact, Klaus Schwab is potentially the most persistent 
person in the entire universe. He has been touting this idea of stakeholders or stakeholder, quote unquote, capitalism since 1971. So what they do is if the idea doesn't catch on, they just change it around. So this video that went out that got the attention actually had been in an article format before that, where some woman was sort of hypothesizing about how great it would be to not own anything. And then there was a, another article that they have that you could maybe have like everything in your life be like a library system where you could just somehow borrow it. It would just magically <laughs> appear. So just doing a very limited amount of research makes you go, okay, this is happening. And then as I started thinking about all the issues that people were contending with, what we went through with COVID, social credit, central bank digital currencies, ESG, down in the United States, we have Wall Street competing for home ownership um, and, and issues with college and young people not being able to, to get wealth. I started thinking about all these things and going, how are they connected? And just one day I'm, I'm walking and it just hit me like a lightning bolt. You will own nothing. And it really became the through line. And the more that I dug into it, the more I kept seeing the same names and the same players popping up over and over again. And as somebody who has not been very conspiratorial in my life, although now I would say probably a little bit more than, than before, when things pop up a couple of times, you go, well, you know, that might just be coincidence. When you're starting to see it like a half a dozen or more times and you have to kind of rule out that it's a coincidence, then it becomes a trend. Well, and, you know, it's uh, one of my things, it's not like Klaus Schwab was hiding it. He, as I say, he put out no. the book, COVID, The Great Reset. But he also had a, you know, as I said, with uh, future King Charles, uh, they did a little bit there. Then they had their, I think it was in January of 21. That was the name of their conference. As you say, it's still up on the website now. It's, it's others who sort of looked at that uh, in disbelief. And, and one of the things that, you know, it comes right down to the core. If you're talking, and there is a lot of anti-capitalist sentiment there, but you talk capitalism, you're talking ownership. I mean, one of the distinctions, why I, I did uh, graduate work and why some countries develop and other countries don't. Yeah. Well, right at the essence of that is private property rights, you know, uh, and... We have seen that play out, of course. I mean, it's a long time since I was in graduate school. Look at me. But, you know, but, uh, you know, you see how it plays out. And I, I mean, we're talking about right to the fundamentals of uh, capitalism and freedom. So think about just the word that I said, this, Klaus Schwab has been pushing this since 1971, stakeholder instead of shareholder. If you're a shareholder, you have an ownership stake. You've put something, whether it's your time or your money, to have some skin in the game and to have that ability for something to appreciate and value. A stakeholder is just anyone who's, you know, anybody who's not affiliated with the company who says, I'm a stakeholder, I'm important, I'm in your community, I'm a business person, I'm whoever, I'm a quote unquote stakeholder. They are just from the beginning shifting that idea away from the concept of ownership ownership to the concept of stakeholders. And I do think it is important to see how things have shifted over time. You know, it used to be that property was passed down in a very vertical manner, that if you were somebody who came from a noble family, a wealthy family, uh, you could, as a heir, male heir, usually inherit that wealth. And that was it. But it wasn't until there was private property rights and protections. I mean, we've always had the rights, but that they were actually protected, that we had the ability 
along with technology to say, okay, I'm going to make the investment and I'm going to do things. And then we're going to be able to trade. If I have something that I want and you have something you want, Mike, and we can trade and have that protected. And that has brought to the world incredible prosperity. You're not just here in North America, but really on a global basis. And so we're seeing this movement and the shift away from that concept and getting people to buy into it as a good idea. It's one thing if you want to do it voluntarily, you want to live a, 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 you know, a stuff-free life cycle, that, that's fine. But to have that push from a central planning directive standpoint is a very scary proposition and something that should raise everybody's antennas. I'm thinking in terms of uh, individual uh, progress that they've made on this front. I mean, we had one of the things I noted uh, again back in 220, I think it was in, in early July when Joe Biden says their Democratic slogan is build back better in Canada. Shockingly, uh, the Liberal Party adopted that precise slogan. Then we saw it go into Europe. And so, I mean, that was unusual in and of itself. If you think there's some sort of general agenda, I think that would give you a good hint at that. But Build Back Better, where are we at on this right now? I mean, I'm seeing all sorts of things are, uh, when they talk about, uh, you know, the shared economy, for example, government restricting freedoms, for example, uh, they seem to be making progress, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that is also somewhat conspiratorial in theory, but not really that I think underpins what we're talking about is this concept of a new financial world order or a new world order. And that you know sounds like way off the charts. Like, what are you talking mm-hmm. about? Um, it's very much based in history. You know, right now, you know, the, the U.S. has been at the center of the global financial economy for about 80 years. But before us, it was the British. And before the British, it was the Dutch. And so you know, these things do go in cycles. And if you're a student of history, you can see that we are at least sort of late stage in the cycle. At the same time, you have people like President Biden who's talking about this openly. There is a group in the United States called the Business Roundtable, which is the CEOs of all the major U.S. corporations, and they get together to talk about ideas and enact policy ideas and reforms and whatever. And uh, he had a, a speech with them on March 21st of 2022. You can find this on the White House's website where he says, there's a change that happens about every three to four generations. There's going to be a new world order out there and we've got to lead it. So this, this is not something, again, like you said with Klaus Schwab publishing the book, that this is like a hidden thing. It's really history repeating. And then the people who are the most elite in the world recognizing it and figuring out what they they want to do. And that's where, where I kind of go with this is why is this happening? If you're elite and well-connected, you hold power, you hold money, all of this, you know, you know that that stakes are shifting financially. Are you going to just sort of let this all play out and hope that it works out for you and your buddies? Or are you proactively going to try to make sure that it does work out for you? And I don't know, Mike, which do you think is going to happen there? (laughs) Yeah, I don't think they're on our side pushing real hard, by the way. Yeah, right. And there's so many examples of that progress, though. I mean, I'm sorry, surprised when you see Major Walfrey, you mentioned BlackRock, they come out and the amount of home ownership that they've got you know, right now. We know there's rental problems in major urban centers. Gosh, Canada's going to be the poster child for that in Vancouver and Toronto. And, and again, everywhere you look, there's a squeeze on individuals. 
I actually have a chart in the book. Um, it's not mine. I got it from the Financial Samurai that shows basically income levels in both the U.S. and Canada and the increase in housing prices. And you guys are in much worse shape than we are here in the United States based on a whole slew of factors. In the United States, as you mentioned with BlackRock, one of the crazy trends that has happened is that there has been institutional capital that has come in and started competing with individuals for homes. And this is an outgrowth of 15 years of central bank policy that has suppressed interest rates and put a ton of money on the balance sheets. And basically that inflated asset prices um, and, you know, at this point created a lot of inflation for the average American citizen. And what happened as the asset prices increased and cheap and easy capital was available to Wall Street, they started putting it in everything and they ran out of places to put it. So this did not exist before 2010 in the United States. Now, about one out of every five homes that is purchased is purchased with the intention uh, it's purchased by a corporate owner, not with the intention to flip it, but with the intention to rent back the American dreams to the citizen, which is crazy. The other crazy thing is one of one of the uh, companies that are doing this is actually based in Canada. I don't know if you've heard of Tricon, oh, sure. <laughs> but Tricon Residential is one of the, the companies I talk about in the book. So even here in the United States, we're getting capital you know, from a, a publicly traded company that happens to be based in Canada that's now coming in and competing with Americans for single family homes. And it's really disrupted the ability for the average person to have the American dream and to have that level of ownership. And, and across uh, all demographic groups here and in most places around the world, the house is the leading asset for most people's wealth. I mean, that is where the biggest store of wealth is, because if you think about it, and you'll appreciate this coming from financial services, one of the big issues in financial the financial markets is duration. You know, when stocks go up, people are happy, but when they go down, they panic, they end up selling at the wrong time. You can't really do that with your house because you're consuming it. Your kids are going to school, maybe you have a job. So even though there's shifts in the market, as, as long as you can continue to pay your mortgage or whatnot, you're not trading in and out of your homes. So you get that benefit of a long duration and that price appreciation, as we have seen that the assets, you know, values being inflated, some of that by productivity, but a lot of it by central bank policy. And so taking that away from people, we have young people who are struggling, who feel like they're never going to be able to participate in that one, because the housing prices are so high. And two, here in the U.S., because we also have the government locking them down with predatory uh, college loans and enriching the colleges at the same time. So from sort of every direction, we're getting this you will owe nothing thing a situation. You've got the government and the central banks that are making it harder for you to retain wealth. You've got these bad actors and, you know, the WEF, the UN, other big businesses that are making it, it harder. And then you've also got big technology who, you know, a handful of companies that are sort of acting as de facto governments in and of themselves that are basically renting your life back to you as a service, or in some cases, you know, helping with government interference. You know, one of the things is the Freedom Convoy in Canada, you know, the fact that that they were raising money on a US platform and the Canadian government came to them and said, shut it down and shut down those those donations is staggering. 
Uh, and the book is called, I want to remind people, You Will Own Nothing, Your War with a fi New Financial World Order. And one of the things I said is unique is you talk about, and obviously we can't do justice to that here. That's why you write a book and all the work that goes into it. <laughs> right. But I want to give people flavors of what, why they should go out and have a look because uh, there is a new financial world order. And the other side is how do you actually fight back? How do you protect yourself here? Can you give me just a couple of samples of uh, the challenge we're facing and maybe one or two of the things that we might want to keep in mind in, in uh, protecting ourselves? Yeah, so this is um, one of the things I wanted to do in the book. Uh, here in the United States, one of the um, elements of, of, or, or forms that you can go through in terms of bankruptcy is a Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So Chapter 11 usually means that I took my Chapter 11 and flipped it on its head, and it's all about how you can protect yourself and try to own everything. So that's a little mm -hmm. Easter egg for you. But yeah. you really have to understand all of these different forces because you're gonna do something different depending on what the issue is. So one of the areas I talk about is central bank digital currencies. And this is something that central banks around the world, the G7, which we're both part of, um, has put out their principles for retail facing CBDCs. You don't do this as this is not something that you're familiar with. So imagine that you're out and you have you know, some level of cash and you're going out to spend that. Imagine there's a microchip in that. And all of a sudden, the government could track every single transaction down to the dollar. And if they didn't want you to spend it, because maybe you ate too many burgers that month, and you know, meat's bad for the environment, they decided they could shut that down. I mean, that's what the technology and the control would, would do. It would really fully centralize the money within the hands of the governments and central banks that issue them. So, so for something like that, you have to say, okay, so if, if I go out and I earn my money and they want that all to go into a CBDC format, where else can I put that in? Not only from an investment standpoint, but also from a medium of exchange trade standpoint to get my food because I do want a burger to make sure that I get the medicines that I need to make sure that, you know, I make those investments. And so it's retraining yourself to not depend so much on cash in the form that it is and to think about things like precious metals to put more money into homes and perhaps it's not in the neighborhood you're in now, but maybe in a, one that's a little bit more suppressed to, to look at other ways that you can make sure that you're preserving not only that value, because we know the governments are overspending and, and taking away our purchasing power, but also just to be able to have some medium of exchange or maybe some barter system that is outside of the normal um, scenario where the, the central banks and the governments can interfere with. And I know, again, that sounds a little preppery or whatnot, but these are real things that are going on. And the analogy I like to use is that if your house is on fire, it's a really bad time to, to have an escape plan that you're just trying to figure out and to try and buy insurance. You want to mm -hmm. come up with that, that plan and that, you know, that protection and hope you never have to use it, but you don't want to be thinking about it in that moment. And so that's a lot of these things. We don't, we don't know the duration. This could be 12 months, 12 years, 50 years. And there are a lot of different form factors that it could take. But when something does shift, are you going to be staring going, I didn't do anything to prepare for this. What am I going to do? Or do you say, yeah, you know, I put some money into some tangible physical assets, you know, things like a 
some coins that I can hold so I can at least in an interim period while there's this chaos and this is all getting sorted out that I have the ability to continue to live my life. Do, did I get myself a, a house for, you know, there's hyperinflation, you know, my assets, my stocks, all these things are going to go up, but that cash is going to be worthless. So it's, it's really rethinking your approach to sort of your entire financial portfolio. I think your point's so well taken. You don't wait until the boat's uh, sinking to figure out whether you got a life jacket. Right. And that's my that's my thing all along. When you look at the pace of these changes that we're experiencing, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're just measuring on a stock or what have you, you just see the rate of change is amazing. And I just think one has to set back. I mean, one of our big themes here on Money Talks is, uh, I'll give you a choice. In five years' time, do you want to own that pile of paper, that paper currency, or do you right. want to own, it might be oil, wheat, gold, you know, that kind of thing, stuff, in other words, because, I mean, it's clear that they've been devaluing the purchasing power in an aggressive way. I mean, well over 120 countries are already in deep, deep trouble, but I think it's naive to think it's not coming here. And and further to your point about digital currency, that's what I find is most on people's minds because the ability uh, for surveillance, for monitoring everything you do. Yeah. I can go back to Al Gore in November, uh, sorry, the Glasgow uh, COP26 conference. And he literally said, we're going to have the ability to distract everything you do, literally. Well, and then there's going to be punishments or rewards and all of this kind of stuff. I guess my point is, and that's why it's so good to have your book sort of encompass this is it's already well underway. I mean, it is. And if you go back to what happened during COVID, you know, there, there already was this very informal social credit system that rewarded and punished you depending on who you were and what you did and how you acted. So if you think about there's sort of different ways that you can amass uh, income and then eventually put that to work for you for wealth. One of them is through your social standing. If you have good social standing, you've, you have opportunities that come to you. Well, if you didn't take the vaccine, you might not have been able to go to a restaurant or you were called names on social media or people you know didn't want to deal with you. In certain areas, you actually lost your job. You, you lost the source of income, the direct source of income. And then you know, in terms of actually taking away your assets, they shut down specific businesses, some, not all. And like we saw with the Freedom Convoy, they took those actual donations away from them. So you're seeing already this tie between social credit and the financial implications. The digitization, the, be able, the ability to do it at scale, particularly with a currency, just takes it to a different level that we've never seen before. And there are so many different entry points to be able to do this and get people's buy-in. So think about the inflation that we're experiencing. The Fed could say, listen, are you sick of inflation? We have a tool that can do this. But in order to do this, you know, we need to, to have this, this central bank digital currency. So people buy in and when they want to destroy demand, they literally shut off people's spending power. Like you cannot access those dollars. So that is a potential way in. Uh, a devaluation scheme like they, they did here in terms of stimulus checks in the United States. Hey, I'll give you 10 digital Canadian dollars or 10 digital U.S. dollars for every one you turn in. People who are not financially literate will think that they're going to be rich because of that and not understand the, the purchasing power devaluation that comes along with that. So there are a lot of different entry points that we've already seen people being susceptible to. They sort of did a dry run 
with COVID on some of these in a very light way. And I have to say, Mike, I don't know if you're in the same camp, but like 10 years ago, if you would have told me this scenario, I probably would have still been kind of skeptical and go, yeah, I don't know. But having lived through what we did over the last three years, I can no longer be skeptical. Well, uh, regular listeners to the program know I can jump on the hobby horse of free speech <laughs> at any moment because I look historically. I mean, it has never worked out to see censorship. I mean, yeah. it's one of the distinctions between uh, pro, you know, how do you get progress without questioning things. And, you know, uh, I talk about that all the time. But when you look at the encroaching censorship here, you know, that, uh, you know, we have what's called Bill C-11, uh, you know, which the, the point was to have government be able to have the last resort of censoring what goes on social media. But that was about yeah. their third try at it, by the way. I mean, it wasn't like they got rejected in Bill C-10 and then said, ah, oh, well, forget about it. No. They, they, they couldn't get it back on the sort of order board fast enough. And I, I just think, again, it's this evidence that is supporting everything. And, and, and your book does a great job in bringing all of these different areas because it is all encompassing there. Uh, just before I let you go, can I, can I come back to that social credit concept just for Absolutely. people? I think it's so key because we experienced it in COVID. So it's not a case of I can't believe that will happen. It's very true. We did experience it. And this was on a very non-formalized basis. If you look at China, they have one in place that is much more formalized. It's actually not as formalized in some ways as I think some of the people think it is because it's different on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. So some of them use number grades, some of them use letter grades, and they actually pick the sort of punishments and rewards and what's good and bad based on the needs of that jurisdiction, which just goes to show how malleable this is and how it's at the whim of the central planners. But one of the stories that I share in the book that just blows your mind, it's from NPR. So again, very well sourced. Mm -hmm. this, is not, this is not like a conspiratorial leaning yeah. arena. And it's about a gentleman named Lao Duan. And Lao Duan was a coal intermediary. He would buy, store, and sell coal. Well, the Chinese government changed their policy on coal and completely upended his business overnight, and he could no longer pay for anything. So he was put on the country's blacklist because of the changes that the government made. So he wanted to be able to travel, and they said, no, I'm sorry. So they take away your travel. Then he's going with this, this person from NPR, and they go into town, and they look up, and there's an electronic billboard, and he sees his face on the electronic billboard and it's got his name and his identification number and it says this is an untrustworthy person and it cycles through a bunch of people and he tells the the, the npr journalist oh i recognize a lot of the people these are a lot of the people from the coal industry that had the same issue as me so this is right out of a george orwell novel and to think that that can't be transported here to the united states or to canada is foolhardy because we saw the picking of winners and losers and these mandates, not based on science, but based on central planning whims. Yeah, it's, I, I, by the way, I, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, man, this book's going to be unpopular with all the right people. <laughs> I, yeah, it's, it's one of those, I wanted to do a trailer and I was told by my publisher that I couldn't, but I wanted to do a trailer of like, here are all the entities who really don't want you to, to read yeah. this book. And it's, you know, the central banks, the WEF, the UN, Justin Trudeau, Joe Biden, 
you know, BlackRock, like basically everybody who's, you know, on the wrong side of everything. And they're not going to be happy um, with this book. But that's the intention. The intention is to empower people with the knowledge of what's going on and not let them sell it to you as you being happy and not let them get away with what they're doing and give you that plan to fight back. Well, let me remind everyone that you can order it right now on Amazon. Release date is July 18th, so we're right there. So you will own nothing. Your war with a new financial world order and how to fight back, Carol Roth. Carol, thanks so much for finding time for us. Yes, thanks so much. You know, the elites want you to own nothing, but I want you to own everything. So I appreciate (laughs) this discussion, Mike, and what you're doing um, to help people navigate this.